Hey, hey guys, you're on with Ashley Goring, and we've got a whole new uh, topic today to talk about. Uh, I want to introduce a very special guest today, which is Michelle Etter. How are you, Michelle? Hi, Ashley. I'm doing well. How are you? Good, good. Are you staying nice and warm, unlike us in, Ca- in Calgary here? <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a little chilly here in California, but I'm sure nothing like where you're at. <laughs> no, we're in a bit of a deep freeze right now. It's about... Oh my goodness negative 20 with wind chill and that's actually good (laughs) compared to the beginning of the week with wind chill was negative 35 (laughs) oh my goodness so um uh first thing i want to do a shout out to any of my followers that are listening in calgary or winnipeg or anything like that please be considerate of your animals bring them inside do not keep them outdoors unless they are a husky or malamute that like this cold um do be very careful don't leave them outside and if you see a cat outside at midnight in this cold please bring them in you know like it's we don't want to see animals frozen that's just terrible so um michelle how are you today how are you feeling with your third pregnancy (laughs) i'm i'm feeling good i uh have some hip pain but other than that it's been it's been fine that's great. That's great. I saw the big news yesterday. Congratulations on a girl. Now. Thank you. <laughs> That's super exciting. Are you guys excited for that? Mm-hmm. We are. Yeah. For the big, the big change. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's what we're hoping for. The next, uh, the third one is a boy for us. So which would be a big change for us as we have two girls, right? <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so I'm very, very thankful for you doing this podcast with me today. Um, It's actually a topic that I've been wanting to do for quite a long time. And I just really wanted to be more prepared for and I felt like I was more prepared at this point in time to do it. Because it is a huge thing in society nowadays, that's still a problem. And I wouldn't say it's so much taboo, as it is just it. a a big issue problem in society and uh, the topic today guys is uh, drinking and driving so basically put an end to alcohol related driving uh, fatalities and uh, the reason why I asked uh, for Michelle to come on today is because unfortunately uh, she had she and her husband uh, Marcus uh, Marcus Koval uh, unfortunately dealt with some very very unfortunate uh, incident with their son Uh, being killed by a drunk driver who was 15 months old at the time. And, you know, um, so I really wanted to talk about this so that people, you know, because I know for myself having, I I had, I believe, a 12-month-old at the time when this happened was for you, uh, to you guys. And uh, I know for me, when you start hearing these kind of things, it becomes more real when you start hearing other people talk about the situations they, you know, they, they were in, right? And, um, So, Michelle, uh, to kind of just a a few kind of questions here, I'll go back before kids were around. When you heard this kind of topic brought up, you know, in conversation, how how did you find people acted about drinking and driving? Uh, Before having kids? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, it's a very casual thing, especially... I'm not sure what it's like in Canada, but in mm-hmm. in the U.S., it's very, very casual. It is treated almost as a joke. It's more of an inconvenience mm-hmm. to the driver than yes. um, than you know than drivers taking responsibility for the fact that they're handling a two ton machine that yeah. is 
that could very well kill someone very quickly. So, um, and, you know, unfortunately, uh, I grew up in a culture that accepts drinking and driving like it's nothing. I am Ukrainian and Mm -hmm. people, it's a very heavily, uh, it's a, it's a heavy drinking culture and people don't, don't think twice about drinking and driving because they think, I do this all the time. I have a high tolerance for alcohol. I can do this. I'm fine. I I drive even better when I'm drunk. So isn't that funny to hear someone say that when someone tells you that? It's insane. Like it's crazy. That is crazy to hear. I've heard that so many times too, and I'm like, what? That that is just scientifically not true. You're exactly yeah. Your brain. Your brain is affected by alcohol, your coordination, your, your reaction time, your inhibition. Everything is affected by alcohol. That's just not true that you drive better when you're drunk. No, no for sure. For sure. I mean, I know for myself, uh, I, you know, I'm five foot three. I don't drink a lot, so I don't have a big tolerance. I know for me, I can't even have one drink and go drive. And I won't because I know I, I don't have the mindset to do it. Um, so do you feel like probably because of your surroundings now today do you feel like if the topic's brought up today you're you see different kind of results of what people are saying or do you think just in, in general community we're still seeing the same issues of how people treat it well obviously my community is <clears throat> stands behind Marcus and I and they yes. are very supportive and none of my friends drink and drive but before I mm-hmm. had kids I you know I was out and about going to bars and because I had grown up with drinking and driving to me that wasn't a big deal either and I R- okay. I drank and drove as well and the the you know the point for me when I stopped was when I hit, fell asleep behind the wheel and I um hit a tree <clears throat> Oh, wow. Okay. So you had your own uh, minor incident then. And it's, you know, I am not proud of it, but I do think it's important to speak about it because Mm -hmm. it was a wake up call for me. And I, in the moment I thought, oh my goodness, my car is trashed. I am, my mom's going to be so mad at me. I was 18 at the time. Um, Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, oh no. And I thought I had this very selfish view about it um, where I was still, even in that moment, thinking just about me and thinking just about my world and how I impacted my life. But when, when right. I stopped, at, you know, a few weeks later, when I stopped and actually analyzed my actions and reflected on what I had, what I had done, I realized, holy moly, holy shit. I could have killed someone that was completely innocent. And that's when I realized, you know, no more. I can't do this anymore because this mm-hmm. is not a joke. And um, it, it really hit me hard that I could have taken someone's life. And I really thought, you know, would I be able to live with myself? Would I be okay with that on any level? Mm-hmm. Even... And I I realized I wasn't. So I I realized it just wasn't that important for me to drink and drive because I could not live with myself had I killed someone. 
For sure, for sure. And I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's crazy, because as an 18 year old, you really do have a mindset. And this is even in your teens, too, right? Uh, You have this mindset that you're invincible. Yes. And I was, I was one of the very few at that age that um, actually didn't ever feel invincible, because I grew up um, in, in the death community and that, like my, my parents both worked in the death industry and that. Um, and I actually started, uh, working in the death industry myself to it at 20 years old. So, uh, I did like, you just have a different perception when you're around it. You can, you can see, you know, how it can, something can affect you to get to get to that point. Right. Mm -hmm. So I was, I was actually one of the exceptions of being young and I never thought I was invincible. And I would see all my friends, you know, uh, or people I just hung out with going and doing all these drugs and everything or whatever. And I'm like, you're not invincible, dude. And, but that's a super normal thing for an 18 year old to think like you're just invincible and nothing will happen to anyone, you know? Right. Um, so, I mean, you know, I, I, I appreciate you sharing, sharing with what happened with you personally, uh, you know, to get you to realize and thank God nothing happened to you or to anyone, right? Just your right. car and a car, a car is just a car right? <laughs> at the yeah. end of the day, right? Um, yeah. so I, I've, uh, I've actually read Marcus's book and it, it is a, it is a very, very, uh, emotional book for, to me, in my opinion, and I completely I, I, I think everyone should read this book because it really, it really, he points out exactly like what you guys went through and everything like that. So I already know some of the detail of the events of what happened, but would you mind kind of telling me what, you know, in your uh, voice of what happened that day? Yeah. uh, At the time, my sister, my 15 year old sister was staying with us and I had asked her to take Liam for a walk and then grab some lunch for us uh, at a local place. And because I had to study, I was at school at the time and we um, they were gone for quite some time. And I started hearing ambulance sirens and police sirens um, just really close to our house, just a block away. And I said uh, to Marcus that I was going to go check because my sister wasn't picking up the phone. Mm -hmm. And I started to get concerned because that wasn't like her not to pick up her phone. And when I ran out, I saw Liam's stroller in two pieces and both of them were gone at that point. The ambulances had taken them. So what were your thoughts and emotions as you saw his stroller? What was going through your mind at that point in time? Uh, truthfully, I went into an autopilot mode mm-hmm. uh, because it was almost as if I was having an out-of-body experience because intellectually I understood that that was my baby's stroller on the floor right. and that was his frog there. But <clears throat> I didn't realize that that emotionally I couldn't connect with the fact that that could be my baby so it was an out-of-body experience because I just went into where is my baby where is my baby I need to find him where's my sister yeah I need to find her they were both gone so it was a very uh it was it was a tough thing to come into Mm -hmm. because I wasn't there when it happened. So I immediately felt like what is going on? And I felt so guilty that I wasn't there. Uh, and Marcus ended up running 
out after me and we got into the police car, drove to the hospital. Immediately. Right then and there. Uh, Now, what, when you, what time of day was this when this occurred? This was three o'clock in the afternoon. So were you told um, as soon as you got into the police car, what had happened or were they just saying they're at the hospital, we'll explain everything once we get there? Like, we were given very little information. Uh, we were just told that a car hit both of them while they were crossing the street on a marked pedestrian crosswalk. The lights uh, were going off that, you know, someone was crossing the street. And we were told that Liam was breathing on his own, um, and but he was not being responsive at that point. And they, we were told that my sister was breathing and responsive. Okay. Okay. And uh, so, sorry, what time of day did you say this was again? Three o'clock in the afternoon. Three o'clock in the afternoon. Wow. Three o'clock in the afternoon. So you weren't told at, at this point in time that it was a drunk driver? No. So um, like, just to kind of go off a bit here, like, I think it's really important that everyone listening understands that drinking and driving doesn't just happen at like 10 o'clock at night you know, three o'clock during the day, like we can get drunk drivers even in the morning, right? Like there's alcoholics out there. So I think it's very important that people understand that, you know, they're out there any time of day. It's probably, I would feel safe to say it's probably a higher rate at night because that's when bars are really bumping and that. And that's when, you know, the parties are usually happening, but you know, never to actually say that this kind of stuff would never happen during the day either. Right. Yeah, there's a there's a good percentage that uh, that happened during the day and the crashes happened during the day during daylight. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's yeah, that's that's crazy. To, it's 3 p.m. Right. Um, so what happened once you got to the hospital? What was the first thing you kind of remember, I guess, doing right as we got to the hospital? Uh, we arrived just a few seconds after my sister had arrived to the hospital. So I ran up to her and I asked her what had happened because I was so, we, we were not given any information. So I don't, I didn't know what was going on Mm -hmm. and she just kept crying and asking about Liam and, um, of course, and she was taken into a room and Liam was in the next room next to her. There were maybe, 15 to 20 nurses and doctors hovering over his little body trying to figure out what the problem was what what you know how they could save him um Mm -hmm. and this continued for a few hours where you know just doctors and nurses hovered in and out um we were told that he had um bleeding in his brain and that they were going to drill a hole in his brain to take the swelling out right and at some point we were told that was not going to happen so I I studied psychology in school so I was very confused because I knew how precious that time was and how important it was to get that pressure off his brain so Mm -hmm. when they told us that wasn't happening it was I I got angry and I didn't understand what was going on and then eventually he was transported um to the icu the icu and so i imagine i I can only imagine that the hospital stint was like a complete blur at some points in time right um yes i i i know for 
Tim and myself, actually, we, our daughter, actually, I'm not, not even kidding for two days. Uh, it was uh, February 9th, literally last year where she ended up with, ended up going, being rushed to children's hospital because she couldn't breathe. And it only ended up being croup to its most severe, but literally her airway had closed. They, she was in the trauma room for like two hours. Like, and we remember being by the bedside and just doctors and nurses coming in. And I just remember it being a complete blur and you're just like holding everything together until a certain point. So I do, I do completely like remember that kind of blur, like, vision so i can only imagine in your case with that many more doctors and nurses and that it sounds way more you know it would be way more intensive than what we dealt with um now i found it really interesting from marcus's book um when one of the things i remember reading in there he he remembers being like in the hallway and a little girl asking if she could give him a hug and i found it somewhat surprising he actually remembered such a small i guess detail but it must have had such a big impact on him because he was going through so much emotions at the time. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I thought that was a very interesting, uh, interesting thing that he actually had remembered that. Um, so when was, so once you were told, when was kind of like, how many days are we looking at, you know, from when Liam ended up in the hospital to, uh basically you were being told like now different like everything had changed now like it it was it was not so much could we save him anymore is that more right um so the the crash happened on um on September 3rd and that night we were told by a doctor in the ICU that he was he was very um skeptical that he would pull through just based on his brain trauma and his brain injury and um his Liam's brain 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 stem had sunk into his spine and because of that that was the most severe injury because of that he was he was very un he was skeptical that he would pull through, but they had to do two neurological tests to see if there was any neurological response. So the first test was done that evening and Mm -hmm. he did not have any response. And then the next test was done 12 hours later, which was on September 4th and September 4th was when he was officially declared brain dead. But we, we, he was kept on life support because we were going to donate his organs and we did donate his organs. Um, Which I think is, which I think is great that you guys did because uh, there's so many people that, you know, when I've talked to people and that, and I, you know, I've made very clear to him, like, you know, we are organ donors and everything like that. We don't need them when we're gone. Like, you know, and whereas there's sometimes with families and that where they go, well, I don't like, you're taking a piece away from them. Like, yes, but they're, you're not there anymore. Like you could be helping someone. Like, do you understand that? Like you're, if you're not here anymore why do you need these organs you know and so I've like you know I I I have I've talked to many people about this like you know to be like you just think about it you should be an organ donor so I really you know promote people to really think about this yeah I mean um I think as people we have this idea where we're very physical beings we we need the Mm -hmm. physical touch um so we're attached to our bodies and 
I was, you know, so broken that my baby was no longer here. But I also knew that he was more than just a physical body. So of I, you know, I, I, I kind of went through the organ donation process in a blur, like you said, and yeah, it was autopilot. Marcus really, you know, took charge of that and handled all of the paperwork and what needed to be done. But I, I supported the decision because I knew that this, he, he could live on and help people. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I do agree with you that it's really important because we're much more than just our physical body and our physical state that we can help someone even after we're gone. For sure. For sure. And I, like I said, for, for me, I probably have a, such a different mindset compared to other people just because I, you know, I've basically grown up in the death industry my entire life. So I, I see it from a different standpoint and I do get that. So when I'm talking to people, sometimes I'm like, okay, you know what? I need to step back and, you got to You just think about it this way. You know what I mean? And then I back off kind of thing. Uh, because like, I've always been someone that's been very like, no, you should donate your organs and that. And, but when you're put in the situation that you were put in, you know, that's a very hard decision to make at the time, of course. Right. And, um, so in regards to, you said that kind of Marcus took over here, what was going on, I guess, when it came to the two of you, how were you guys interacting with each other? Was he just kind of running around talking to people? That's kind of the impression I got from the book. And you were with Liam the entire time. Um, yeah, he, he accepted the fact that Liam was gone much sooner than I did. Which is a normal thing for mothers to hold on a lot longer. Yeah. I would, I would, I would say that as a mother. Yeah. Um, and you know, he, he, Liam was kept on life support for two extra days because we were donating his organs. So Marcus, you know, immediately sprung into action. That's how he was able to, to channel his grief. Whereas I, until we left the hospital, I was convinced that Liam was going to pull through. Right. I was, there's always that hope. Yeah. yeah, I was convinced that I was going to get a miracle. And yeah. um, it is so so to me also, you know, I went through with the the organ donation part, but part of me, part of in my heart, I just didn't think it was going to happen just because I mm-hmm. thought, you know, I it's he's going to pull through. And at, at some point, his fingers started to twitch. Um. And I, I told the doctor and, and we were told that's just nerves firing that that's not a clear sign that he's, you know, neurologically mm-hmm. responding mm-hmm. because his eyes weren't responding when they disconnected him from the machines. He, his heart started to slow down and he wasn't breathing on his own. So they, we were told it was just nerves firing. Um, yeah. So yeah i he he basically just sprung into action and i was with liam i was by his bedside talking to him singing to him and marcus would come every so often as well and he spent a lot of time with liam too but he definitely channeled his grief in a different way than i did for sure for sure and so when did you guys find out like about 
the driver. So the driver in this scenario, we haven't really talked about much yet. When did you guys find out like, Hey, this driver that hit them has been, um, they got, they got this person and they were actually a drunk driver. Like when did all that, did you find out? We were, we were told about the driver almost uh, as soon as we got to the hospital um, we were told that it, it was a drunk driver and the driver tried to drive away and get away. But Good Samaritans followed the driver and they blocked her off so she couldn't get away and waited until the police got there. So I'm, I'm super grateful for the people that sprung into action because they because I'm sure what they saw was a really traumatic experience for them as yeah. well. Yeah. And to be able to react immediately and not wait for your brain to process what just happened and actually spring to action. Yeah. Grateful for those people. Yes. Thank you to those good, uh, to those Samaritans. Seriously. Like that's like a huge thank you to them for sure. And, um, so you said this was a female. Yes. The driver. Uh, you know, we both, Marcus and I both had an image in our head that it was going to be a male somewhere between 25 to 35. Um, but we were told almost immediately as soon as we got to the hospital that it was an elderly woman in her 70s. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's a, that is a huge shocker to hear that. Um, because, you, you, like you said, most people would assume yeah from I would for me personally that's what I would assume what you guys assume too so to hear a 70 year old woman elderly woman like that's that's insane to think right like and the time of day and everything like you know so it just goes to show people you know that it, it doesn't matter if you're male or female what age you are you know drinking and driving affects everyone and you can't assume that just because you know okay this elderly woman came to the casino or bar or wherever she came to you know like as a bartender you should be acknowledging her too yeah you know what i mean and how many drinks she's drunk driving doesn't have um a face it has it has a no the the victims have a face but the the perpetrators do not have a face because it, it can literally affect anyone and the problem with it is it's it can affect good people. You know, it's because they just yeah. make poor decisions. And now I, yeah. I personally don't know this woman. I never spoke with her. She never reached out to us to apologize. She tried to fight the case and plead not guilty. Uh, yeah. Really? And the fact that she drove away, um, she stopped for about 20 seconds. Uh, that's what the police reports say. Um, and then mm-hmm. she drove away. So in those 20 seconds, I, I would assume that she, you know, realized that she hit someone to, to someone, so yeah. to, two people. Yeah. And she, tr- she really just thought of herself. So to me, you know, I, I don't forgive her. I don't, um, I don't, but I also don't think much about her. She is in prison now. For sure. Uh, so okay. we, we just move on with yeah you move on from there yeah yeah does now do you uh know if marcus forgives her? marcus uh said that he could he could have seen him himself forgiving her had she stood up in court and and taken responsibility on the first day and pled guilty 
Um, instead, yeah. she pled not guilty, and we were in in court for about a year while she was out on bail. And just you know how how unbelievably you've already gone through this traumatic event right and beyond traumatic and to to make it worse you know the fact that she just thinks she's now not guilty even though she's you know hurt or she's hurt all of you guys and you know your sisters your sisters got to have like the worst kind of feeling possible right and has actually killed someone and yet she wants to draw this out to be even more and think she's not guilty and that's what's mind-boggling about this entire thing is how can you think you're not guilty how can you think that you could get away with that you know it just that you know it's it's so even more hurtful to you guys it is it is and you know I don't know I don't know if I could have ever forgiven her even if she had done that but I also don't want to live in a world where in a hypothetical world where my son still dies so I only think of what has happened but Marcus you know, I do believe he could have forgiven her had she stood up and actually taken responsibility, but she didn't. And the the saddest thing for me is she is a mother as well. And she, you know, she, her daughter was in court with her every single time. And she had many years with her daughter. Her daughter was, you know, older. So the fact that she could have just sat there with her child knowing she took mine and knowing she traumatized another child is, is, you know, it's reprehensible to me. It for sure. For sure. So, um, once, uh, so once he was, uh, once Liam was pulled off of life support, um, now I do remember actually reading the book that you wanted a, a, another scan done just to be sure. Yes. And that, that, that's, that I would be doing the exact same thing as a mother too. I'd be like, no, I need to see it before we do anything further. Like I, I would be doing the exact same thing. Um, what, what was going through your mind just to, you know, because you were actually in that moment, I know I say I would do the same thing, but like, what was going through your mind to plead to have that done? Well, that goes back to the fact that I was still holding on to, hope for a miracle and I was convinced that you know his brain was somehow uh repairing itself although I knew from you know from studying that when the brain stem is affected it's pretty it's hopeless but as a mom mm-hmm. you that that hope was, wasn't dead there yet yet um and I was for holding sure. on to to hope and I was really praying for a miracle and so when when it was time for us to leave the hospital because he was going to get pulled off life support and go into surgery to donate his organs, I, I stopped and I said, I can't, I have to have another scan. What if his brain is repairing itself? I have to see it one more time. I, I just need it. And I refused to leave or sign any more documents until I had that scan. And the doctor came in on his day off and was really... Uh, was really patient and really kind to us. And um, he said, you know, this is not the typical procedure. I've already declared him brain dead. A neurologist has declared him brain dead. Uh, So this is not the standard procedure, but he had two kids as well. He said, you know, I, as a parent, I understand. So if this is what you need to feel that you've done everything, 
this is what you need and we'll do Mm -hmm. it. So I was, I was granted that second CT scan. And, um, when I saw it, I, even, even I knew, uh, that his brain, that he was, his brain was not repairing itself. He was not, not there. You know, it was on a, on a brain scan, you should be able to see the fissures and the grooves of the brain and you should see the gray Mm -hmm. and white matter. But at that point, uh, his was basically black. So, uh, the scan looked basically black. So it was, it was a moment where reality started to set in, but still until I was wheeled out of the hospital, it didn't fully grip me. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what? Good on that doctor for, you know, actually, even though he had signed off on it, you know, good on that doctor, because you know what, just because there are actual protocols in life, I, I'm a firm believer that, you know what, sometimes rules are meant to be bent to help situations better. Right. And so good on that doctor for actually acknowledging, you know, as a parent himself realizing like she needs this so that she can move forward or else it's going to be harder for you to move forward. Right. And so I give a lot of praise to that doctor for actually uh, doing that. Uh, So how uh, you guys didn't go back to your place. You guys went back to a hotel from what I remember in the book. How was, how did you and Marcus, uh, interact after this uh we were basically just walking zombies you know we we were it was so fresh we were processing it in different ways but also in similar ways where we would just break down and cry it was like being in the middle of the ocean and then getting hit with waves repeatedly and you could barely catch your breath and mm-hmm. you could barely breathe. And every, every second, like you think you're about to die, you can breathe for a second and then it hits you again. Um, so our interactions were, you know, compassionate, but we were both so broken and we were both so lost yeah. without our child. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And um, I, I, I saw. I remember reading the book that your friends actually cleared out a bunch of his stuff, Liam's, like the baby stuff, and that so that when you did go back home, there wasn't like constant, as much as there would con, there would be constant memories just because you would envision him walking around, mm-hmm. right? Like they did remove some stuff, so it wasn't like you were tripping over it yeah. too, right? Um, as I know from a mother, you trip over every single thing (laughs) with kids. Um, so did you guys like kind of have, was it kind of at some points where you guys were, you know, would hold each other, but then there was times you just didn't want anything to do with anyone, even including each other? No, um, no, we were, we, no. Yeah. Okay. We were, we were very, um aware of you know and respectful of each other's spaces so we we held each other a lot Mm -hmm. but you know there he he immediately started writing the book and whereas whereas I just would lay and cry so we would we'd just be next to each other a lot yeah yeah and um I I do remember reading that there was a lot you know a lot of nights that he held you crying to sleep and that um 
and that you I believe it was one night that he uh he comments about that you actually woke up screaming for Liam what kind of do you remember what happened in that situation like were you dreaming about him and you and like the accident you thought you were there like what what I do remember it was the night that we left the hospital and um okay it was around two thirty, three a.m um and I had taken I had been prescribed um sleeping pills by someone at the hospital because Marcus was really concerned about my mental state. So, uh, while we were at the hospital, I was checked out, um, and I was given some medicine to help me sleep. And I had taken the medicine and I still woke up screaming. I don't remember what I was dreaming, but I remember waking up just screaming his name repeatedly. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. So when, how long would you say it was before you and Marcus kind uh, started to get back to more routine? Like, did you guys, you, you know, go back to having a sex life after so long in that or? Um, I don't really remember um, when, I mean, w- things were not routine or normal for a long time just because our headspace Mm -hmm. was not in the right place um for sure we knew that we wanted to we talked about we we wanted to have another baby um but we talked about not having a replacement baby but you know just Mm -hmm. adding to our family so we we started trying for a baby um pretty soon after the crash just because we had so much love and nowhere to put no like no one to give it to uh so you know we were in therapy and we we worked through that in therapy as well and we you know we worked really hard to make sure that this baby was not going to be a replacement baby and this baby was not going to take on Liam's identity because we needed yeah. to honor both children um, respectfully and give them the space to be yeah. them. So Marcus was really good with that. He right away understood that another baby is another baby. It's not Liam. Whereas yeah. I struggled with it and I, um, you know, I really wanted on some like spiritual level, I wanted this baby to be Liam. But in therapy, you know, we worked through that, that I needed to, because I really wanted to give the space for the baby to be him or herself. But I knew mentally that I would want this baby to be Liam. So in therapy, I worked through that and I worked really hard to create a space. And, you know, even when Nico was, was born, some part of me wished it was Liam, but very soon, um, what's amazing about babies is they're all different and they show their personalities. Yeah. So very soon after mm-hmm. Nico was born, I, I came to terms with the fact that, you know, this is another child. I have to, for him, for his happiness and his development, I have to accept that. And I did. So, um, but as far as like, you know, when things went back to normal, it took about a year and a half, uh, to be honest, we went back to work, 
after yeah. about three months, but we weren't re we were there, but we weren't really present. Yeah. Mentally. Yeah. Mentally not super present in that. And I, I, uh, I really appreciate you also bringing up the fact that uh, you guys went to therapy because I'm someone who is a true believer in counseling in that both Tim and I have done counseling for years and years and years uh, by ourselves and, and uh, together in that. And, you know, there's such a strong, for some reason, stigma um, with, with therapy and counseling and that I don't know why but some people just believe it there's such a negative thing about it and it really isn't it can help you out of you know it can help you with with some of the you know most traumatic times in your life or most stressful times in your life or just times you don't know how to you know uh work through it and so um I'm really glad that you brought that up so that you know people people can feel a bit more comfortable like oh maybe I should you know go to therapy and that because um, it is something that can actually help absolutely you in life. and we you know w- you're not expected to handle things on your own you shouldn't handle things man- many things on your no. own and we're just not equipped to handle what goes on in our minds most of our you know thoughts and actions are subconscious so the, to really be able to speak freely to someone who is a trained professional and someone who is unbiased in your life um, and can can give you that space to just be is really empowering so you know I I am a big believer in therapy I believe that you have to be completely transparent and completely honest and totally vulnerable. And that requires you to trust that person, the therapist. Um, And fortunately we, we had an amazing therapist and I am so grateful for her. That's yeah. And you know what, if, if, if you have the wrong therapist, find another one because there is one out there that will work with you. And sometimes you end up like Tim and I, I went through a couple that I wasn't crazy about um, very briefly. And then Tim and I found this one and we literally have been going to her for 10 years. And you know what, you know, Tim has literally said to her, uh, you know, we wouldn't have kids. We wouldn't be where we are today if it wasn't for you because both Tim and I have come from, um, you know, some past that we didn't know how to get through. And, and we didn't know how to be with each other yeah. because of it. Right. And, but we loved each other so much that, you know, the counselor was like, you guys clearly love each other. Like that's, there's no doubt in my mind. She said, she said, we need, you got, you guys need to know the tools of how to function together now better. Right. <laughs> Basically. So yeah, if there's a counselor out there that's not working, find yeah. a new one. You, you, I do believe you have to connect with the person and I also believe, mm-hmm. like I said, that you have to be completely transparent. There's nothing that you should, you know, feel like you have to hold back. This is a place where you have to just let it all go to get, because what you put in is what you'll get out of it. Exactly, for sure. And I, 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 that is literally the quote. What you put in is what you're going to get out. That That's exactly what I've heard <laughs> from counseling too. <laughs> So I, I believe today, in my opinion, we live in a world today where I, I know anyways in Canada and I know in the U.S. you have some of these. I just don't even believe there really is any reason at all for drinking and driving anymore. You know, for Canada here, we have keys, please, Uber, taxis, buses. And I mean, what happened to walking? Yeah. 
you know, like I, like I'm come from Ladner, a small, smaller town, but I mean, from West side of Ladner, I'll walk to the East side of Ladner. Sure. It might be a 15 minute walk, but what is the problem with walking anymore? You know? And I know for, uh, out there in the States, you guys, in some places have Uber, correct? And taxis and buses. I don't know if you guys have anything like keys, please. No, we don't have keys, please. What is that? So keys, please is basically, uh, you call this service, two people show up in their car, they use, you get in your car, they, they drive your car home and they follow in their car behind the other driver. Um, it's basically because there's so many people that don't want to leave their vehicles, uh, at wherever they brought it to. And I mean, I know for Tim and I, most of the time when we actually know we're going out to like a nice dinner and we're going to drink in that, we don't even take our vehicles. We literally like hop on like the C train, um, which is kind of like the subway kind of thing out in Calgary here. Uh, or we just yeah. get an Uber, you know, like why, why, if you know you're going to drink, why are you even taking yeah. your car with you? Yeah. That's one of the big things that we uh, promote is think before you drink because your mm-hmm. thinking becomes so impaired when you have had alcohol, you know, yeah. it's, it, it impairs you. And so you need to be responsible and be a thoughtful citizen of other people before you have alcohol. And then once you're out, go and have fun and drink as much as you want. And, you know, you don't have to worry about it. You, you can get home safely. Um, without without thinking twice about it for sure for sure yeah because it is true once you actually get your you take your car out like i've known people and they're like oh i'm completely fine and i've had to take their keys and we go no you are not you're not leaving my house like this like are you kidding me and driving away from here like you know and i and i don't want to fight people like i've literally when we've had our like big barbecues and that i literally say on the invite like if you're planning on getting drunk, I will take your keys away. If you bring, if you bring your car here, because I, I've, I've always been someone that I hated drinking and driving. Like I just, um, we had an incident that happened when I was very young with very close friends that was uh, very similar to yours. And, uh, you know, like it's, it's always been something that's bugged me too. So I've always gone after all my friends, you know, like if you come here and you start drinking and you're drunk, don't think you're driving. Right. Home. Like <laughs> I, I will take and your keys. Honestly, if, if someone has the, the money to go out and spend $6 on a beer, $10 on a, um, on a cocktail, you have, you have the money yeah. to spend to get yourself home safely. And at the end of the day, you know, is it worth you completely screwing up your life or someone else's life? Is it? That's right. what you got to ask yourself right. too, right? And at the end of the day, your answer should always yeah. be no. This is not worth it. People have this idea um, that they believe that their car somehow represents their autonomy and their independence, but their their autonomy will be totally threatened if they hurt someone um, or themselves or they kill someone or themselves, you know? So we need to have this separation that your car does not make you an independent person. Your car does not give you any power. The only thing it gives you is the potential threat of hurting someone. Exactly. Exactly. And uh, yeah, I think, I think as somewhat society, I kind of say these days, you know, I, I've known too many, I, 
too many people that just like they want to literally drive up to 7-Eleven that's a block away I'm like why yeah block? <laughs> I'm like people are always talking about how they need to go to the gym and everything I'm like start walking like up the street a block like you don't need to drive and it's the same thing you know you don't need to drive to go to yep. a pub like if you know you're going to a pub yep. uber cab whatever it is get someone to yep. drive you <laughs> you know um and, you know, so just to say to my listeners now, you know, one of the biggest reasons why I, I have asked, you know, a lot of these really hard questions, you know, that were, was very hard for you to talk about and everything. And I really appreciate you being really open and talking about this is I truly believe, you know, when people hear, hear, you know, hear the actual story coming from someone it affects people more and they really evaluate and rethink about things. And so to me, if even like one person, you know, hears this and reevaluates how they have been doing things, then I look at that as, you know, a success at least, you know, one it's affected one person to rethink how they've been right. doing it. Right. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, this, this book is, you can get it on Amazon. It's called life is a moment um, by Marcus uh, Koval. And it is, you know, I will say this, it is a very hard book to read because it is so, it's so emotional. Like it took me quite a long time because every time I get to a part, I'd start crying and put it down and then come back to it like a few days later. And then same thing, you know, and so it, but it's a book that I believe everyone really should read because we, you know, this is still a problem in society that we need to address. And um, do you believe, um, now I don't know out in the States there, but do you believe that we need harsher consequences for drinking and driving? Do you believe we are kind of, you know, have decent enough consequences, you know, for what do you feel? We don't have um, a system in place that deters people from drinking and driving enough. Uh, Right now, for so long, our culture has just accepted it and it's too casual and the Right now, there's two ways that change comes about. Um, One is, you know, culturally, we as a society stand up and say no more. And then the law changes or the law changes and then that impacts society. So right now, because we get we get so many uh, comments that, you know, drinking and driving is not a problem. The texting and driving is a problem or uh, drug driving is the problem. And while all of, all of it contributes to problems, you know, drinking yeah. and driving is, takes up one third of all crashes on the road. And yeah. w- if we can minimize that, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying texting and driving is not a problem. It absolutely is. But for sure. Absolutely. Drinking and driving. If we change the law and lower the legal BAC um, from 0.08 to 0.05 in in the States, we would be able to minimize the crashes by 11%. That is a lot. Wow. That is, no, that is, that is a lot. We can, we can save so many lives and so much heartache and, and the restaurant associations and the bar industry would not be impacted by this because when you look at other major countries like Australia, that is pretty similar to the states, um, they have they have a lower BAC, they have a lower crash rate than the United States, and their restaurant industry is not impacted. 
you know, people still go out and drink people. If people want to drink, people will drink and they, they're just going to be more conscious of it. So at this point, I don't believe that we have, you know, adequate, an adequate system to deter people from drinking and driving, but lowering the BAC level which is a recommendation by the National Tra- uh, Transportation Safety Board and has been a recommendation right. since 2013, um, is this the fastest way to save lives at, because it'll serve sure. as a general deterrent for people because when people know that the law is changed, they're more careful. They pay more attention. And this will affect uh, drivers of all BAC levels. So even if drivers typically drive at a 0.12 or a 0.10, they're, they're going to be more careful because they will understand that, you know, the law has changed. I need to be more aware. It's a general deterrent. Yeah. And we need a system. We need a system that will impact societal change because right now people are given so much misinformation about this and, and just still believe that they're invincible and that they're okay to drive. And I've done it hundreds of times before. So why, why can't I do it now? Well, because that hundred and first time could be the time that you killed someone. You, you could kill someone that is so that is young or old or whoever, but the, the, whoever you impact is, has a family, has a life, has a network, and all of those people will be yeah. affected. Not just that one person that you kill or hurt. All of those people are affected. Yeah. And for people out there, because I've seen this on social media, and it really, it, it really pisses me off. When I see people post on their status, hey, roadblock at such and such, don't go this way, go the other way. Do not be telling people just because police, I don't know if you guys have this out there in California, but out here we have roadblocks like a lot of times on like Friday nights, Saturday nights and that Um, police will go out and do roadblocks basically where if you drive through, they're going to make talk to you, get you to roll down your window if they think something's up, you know, because they look for signs Mm -hmm. to see if you're drunk basically. And I've seen so many times people post on, you know, social media and that like, oh, roadblock at such and such Deerfoot and blah, blah, blah here. And I'm going like, why are you telling people like if these people are dr- drinking and driving, they need to be caught yeah. like, you know, like stop helping someone do something that could kill someone. Why are you helping the, the common argument? I, I completely agree with you, Ashley. Uh, the common argument that I hear is, well, it's it doesn't just affect uh people who have been drinking and driving sometimes somebody doesn't have a license and they're driving or they don't have their registration and they're driving well get get it together and have that (laughs) you're still doing something illegal like don't don't do that you know this I think people just in general need to take more responsibility for their lives and their actions and you know when you have that sense of responsibility then you don't have anything to worry about the police is not going to if you're if you're doing nothing wrong most police officers will not will not target you no exactly and and especially at at those checkpoints they have so many cars to get through they just want to get people in and out it's it's totally true they're looking for the signs of someone that is impaired should not be driving and everything right you know and i know for a fact you know police because tim got pulled over for a speeding ticket not that long ago um and i he was driving my truck and i forgot to put the insurance in because it just got renewed and i forgot but there was insurance on the truck i just forgot to put it in there and so when they asked for it 
He's like, uh, so he got a ticket for that. But the police officer literally said, hey, you can just go and fight this. They'll probably get rid of it if you show the proof of insurance, which I did. I literally did that. They got rid of that right. ticket completely because so, you know, like people like, OK, so you forgot you forgot your insurance and now you're scared to go through the cops like the cops aren't going to put you in jail because you didn't have your insurance. Right. You, you know what I mean? <laughs> You know, and so again, like people stop helping these people that are drinking and driving, you know, like you're not helping, you're not helping the, the, the problem that we have happening in society. And, here. you know, we get the, the argument that, well, I don't, I'm a social drinker. I don't want to be penalized when I go out and drink and have fun. That's fine. No one's trying to penalize you. This is not prohibition. No. All we're saying is, hey, don't get behind the wheel when you're impaired and the other thing that I want to change is this use of language when we talk about drunk driving it's any level of impairment you shouldn't be driving because you are you you are a danger to other people so Mm -hmm. you know if you if you feel like you're impaired you should not be driving and that doesn't matter what level of BAC you're at because some people yeah. may feel fine at 0.02 and others may feel impaired, you know? So that, that's the, the use of language that I am trying to promote to change because impairment is the issue. It's when we are impaired yeah. that we are a danger. Com- completely, completely agree on that. Uh, like I said, you know, I'm a very small woman, five foot three. Uh, you know, I, I don't drink a lot, so I don't have a lot of tolerance. And one drink, yeah, I probably wouldn't blow over or anything like on a breathalyzer. But for me, I am impaired. I know I am. I cannot go and I won't go and drive because I'm like, oh, I just feel like love right now. Like I just should be like dancing and not worrying about anything, (laughs) you know, and people need. Yeah, for sure. We need people need to actually acknowledge like, hey, just because I had one drink. Do you actually feel okay though? Right. And do do you feel like your normal self? Do you feel as alert and as, as, as cognizant because your, your, your cognitive functions get so deteriorated so quickly when you have alcohol. And this is not, again, I just want to stress, this is not to target social drinkers. This is not to target anybody who uh, wants to go out and have fun just don't drink and drive, you know, just think ahead and be responsible and, um, and, and and give yourself a high five every single time that you go out and you don't drink and drive because think of it like, Hey, I just saved a life. For sure. For sure. And I mean, you're, you're not saying like you guys, you guys still drink. Right. Right. I mean, not right now. Obviously I'm pregnant, but no, that's but, right. <laughs> no, no. Right but now. yeah, I mean, I have no, I have no qualms with alcohol itself. I have no, no problems with people going out and having fun. Just, you know, just be responsible. Exactly. Exactly. So what are the changes? Um, actually, you know, one other thing that I wanted, do you believe that we will ever see an end to uh, drinking and driving? Um. I believe we can lower the the crash rates and the fatalities significantly with societal change. Um, I believe that this and this is what I'm about to say is purely uh, anecdotal. Uh, 
most of what the statistics that I say are based in research. This next thing is anecdotal. From what we've seen in going to speak to schools and uh, speaking to younger people, um, the younger generation uh, is more aware that this is a problem and they're more... um, they're more okay with taking an Uber or a Lyft because they're growing up in the time that it's so accepted. So it's not, yeah. they don't have this uh, connection to their car of being a, a source of, you know, autonomy and power and, you know, being able to be independent. They, they are fine with taking um, Ubers and Lyfts. Whereas the older generation and, you know, the older people, the baby boomers specifically, um, those are the people mm-hmm. that we have challenges with. Uh, those are the people that we have discussions with because they don't feel that because they grew up with drinking and driving. It was just so accepted. Yes. Everybody yeah. did it. So again, this is anecdotal, but I, I do, I have seen that distinction between the younger people who are, who are more aware and say, Hey, you know, I'll just take an Uber. It's fine because they're growing up in this time that it's so accepted. Whereas the older people, they're not familiar with this technology. They're not ready to accept it. And they've done this their entire life. So it's really difficult for them to change. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, One of the reasons why I ask that is uh, because one of my friends and actually Tim, they, they said to me, because of course this, this discussion has come up so many times, especially when they found out I was going to do this episode. And um, they, they said in their opinion, they didn't believe it was going to end until we have self-driving cars. Uh, they didn't actually see an end of it completely, which, you know, like for everyone to have a self-driving car was going to be what, 50 years from now. Um, but I completely agree that in between, you know, of that time, we can, you know, as a society, make a change so that to put changes in forth so that it does become less and less and less right. acceptable. Yeah. I, right? Again, I don't, I don't know how, you know, if it'll ever go away, you know, completely. Uh, and yeah, maybe self-driving cars is the ultimate solution. That is what the research is showing that it will be the ultimate solution, but it will take a long time. So in the meantime, what exactly. are we supposed to do? Just sit back and let you know, close to 11,000 people die every year, 10,500 people die every year. Should we just, just sit back and do nothing? Or should we take responsibility and say, Hey, enough is enough. I'm going to be responsible and, and take action for my life and keep myself safe and other people safe when I drive. Yeah, exactly. And that number uh, that you gave, um, I did actually, when I was uh, doing some research on stats and that, it was about an estimated just like almost 11,000 people died in drunk driving crashes in the U.S. uh, with an illegal BAC, um, which is, you know, just, um, and for anyone that doesn't know BAC, uh, that's listening, it's blood alcohol concentration. Uh, so that's that that is significant, people. Like that is that is significant. I read in Canada a stat saying for 2014, average of four people a day are killed for drunk driving. Like that's, you know, like that's that's yeah. pretty significant. And here in the states, um, we have someone die every 49 minutes because of a drunk driver. Yes, I I read that. I read that too, and I was like. Jesus. Yeah. So in the time that we've been speaking, someone has died because of a drunk driver. 
that's that's terrible to think that's just that's you know that's that's absolutely terrible to think yeah um so what are the changes now that you and marcus are putting in putting in uh trying to put forth we are uh you know burning the candle from both ends so to speak we're reaching out to schools and doing a lot of public speaking um advocating for people not to drink and drive not to drive impaired um, you know, we're trying to educate people the per- against the perils of drunk driving and, and give, give drunk driving a, a victim, a face, you know, like, unfortunately, this is the trajectory that our life has been put on. But now we're going to use yeah. everything in our power and all of the resources that we have to make sure that this doesn't happen, you know, because our life was turned upside down our our love was taken from us our child our first child mm-hmm. was was killed and in a very and we our life was turned upside down in a matter of minutes so you know yeah. now we're going to use this and honor Liam to the best that ability that we can and educate people against this and you know give people a face to this and show people that this happens to regular people. This doesn't, you know, this can literally affect anybody. We're not, we're not anybody particularly special. We're just a family trying to, you know, live productive lives, but we were affected by this and this can literally happen to anyone. So we're educating the public Mm -hmm. and we're also advocating for legislative change, because it, like I said, it is important, and all of the research um, that has been done in the last twenty years points to the fact that legislative change has to happen to uh, to lower the the crash rates when it comes to drinking and driving. Yeah, yeah. So if anyone is interested in taking a look at, uh, you guys set up a website that's called Liam'sLife.org. Mm-hmm. I believe that's, yes. I have that correctly. Yeah. Liamslife.org. Uh, just reading my notes here. <laughs> um, so if anyone's interested in checking out everything that Michelle and Marcus are trying to put forth, if you want to get in contact with them and seeing what ways you guys can help in that, uh, you know, uh, definitely give that website to take a look. And again, if you're, if anyone is interested in taking, you know, checking out uh, Marcus's book, that's life is a moment uh, that is available on Amazon. Is it available? Uh, currently else? just Amazon. Just Amazon? Okay, yeah. so that's where I got it from. Um, so, Michelle, I just want to thank you so much um, for coming on and sharing sharing all this information with me. Uh, you know, I know this was incredibly hard for you to talk about, and so I thank you so much for sharing your story, and I really hope that with you having shared your story that it does, you know, af- you know affect someone's way of thinking of, you know, their actions next time they decide to, you know, have a drink and whether or not to get in their car. I really hope they rethink this now. Same, um, same. And I, I hope, thank, thank you for having me. And I, I would like to just say one more thing that when someone is about when, if you've ever, uh, you know, if your listeners have ever, you know, dr- drank and drove, don't let your past define your future and you can make better choices now. And if you're in that situation where you're about to get behind the wheel and you've been drinking and you're impaired, it doesn't matter how many drinks you've had, you're impaired uh, 
think about the person that you covet most. Think about the person that you love most, that you hold in your heart dear, and think about that person being killed by by someone yeah. like you who is about to take that action. And hopefully then, you know, you can understand the gravity that you're of, of the decision you're about to make because you could kill someone and and that person is held dearly by a family, by friends, by a community. So think about the person that you hold most dear in your heart before you drink and drive. That's a good way to put it. Thank you, Michelle. Again, thank you so much for coming on. And I'm so sorry for your loss. And that this is the, you know, unfortunately, one of the uh, things that you do talk about now because of what's happened. And, uh, you know, you take care of yourself in that preg- pregnancy here. How much I have longer one do month you have? Left. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Holy girl. <laughs> so not much longer. It's the, it's the month that's like, oh, yeah. it's over already. <laughs> so I just want to end this episode with a quote from Marx's book that I actually absolutely loved from the moment I read it. Um, that's uh, blood makes you related. Loyalty makes you family. Absolutely loved that quote, everyone. And um, thank you so much, Michelle. You have a great day and everyone else have a thank calculated you. day. Thanks, Ashley. Bye-bye. <laughs>